Coming to you from Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. It's Monday, July 31st. I'm Will Ippen. Producer on This Is Hell. I'm filling again for filling in again for uh, Chuck Mertz. Uh, this time, however, I'm filling in for happier non-surgical reasons. Chuck and his family are at their annual and hopefully restorative and accurate accident-free uh, trip to northern Michigan's lake country for the next two weeks. If things go according to plan, today marks the first day at the cottage. I haven't heard any updates yet. I assume no news is good news. So for the next couple of weeks... Uh, I will be your guide through hell until Chuck's return to the interview booth on the other side of the glass on Monday, August 14th. You can welcome him back in person at the next office hours uh, on Wednesday, August 16th at Carrie's Lounge, again at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. There will be no office hours this week or next, however. I might pop in for a drink or two at the usual time, out of habit. But uh, this would be completely unsanctioned drinking and thinking. So, uh, yeah, you've been warned. The consequences of which uh, neither the show nor I can be held responsible. When you do come to office hours, be sure to check out the art show right here in Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge. This is Art features a wide range of art for your perusal and perhaps even purchase. Uh, neither us nor at This Is Hell nor Carrie's Lounge take a cut from these art sales. 100% of the proceeds go to the artists. How cool is that? Where else can you see an elaborate, fully functional crown displayed on a, a mannequin head made wholly from a found cat skeleton? Uh, you all really have to come by and take a look. It's a sight to behold. It's a beautiful Monday, uh, 
at this point early afternoon in Chicago. Uh, following on from an unseasonably and delightfully mild weekend for late July. I was able to enjoy the Cook County Forest Preserves a little bit this weekend. Uh, Some public lands that uh, some smart if not flawed people a long time ago, like over a hundred years ago, thought fit to set aside so we wouldn't end up like, I don't know, the Houston area or something of just unending sprawl. We have enough sprawl here, but we also have a belt of forest preserves and other public land. Um, Anyway, it's uh, it's really nice outside and uh, because this is hell, I'm stuck in the production room today and tomorrow and Wednesday. Uh, listen to me, like a true Midwesterner, I'm leading with uh, talking about the weather. Uh, you better believe I'll be headed straight outside after I post today's episode. Uh, another outdoor news, one of my favorite outside friends, Chief the Cat. He's the official cat boss of Rogers Park. Not to be confused with West Ridge, where... Mel rules the world, west of Ridge Avenue. Uh, Chief got a write-up in uh, Block Club Chicago, a one of my go-to sources for hyper, hyper-local news in, in, in Chicago's neighborhoods. Uh, according to that article, some refer to this cat who is chill most of the time, sometimes grumpy, sometimes affectionate, uh, some, according to the article, refer to this feline as our neighborhood alder cat. I've not heard this designation till the article, which I was pleased to read. Um, but long overdue recognition for Chief, the cat who's been perplexing my cattle dog Edie for years now out on walks. That has me thinking. I think Mel, the resident cat at Carrie's Lounge, needs more press. Maybe Mel prefers to fly under the radar. That actually wouldn't surprise me, but uh, who's to say? This week and next, we will feature six different interviews with the prolific historian and listener favorite, uh, Gerald Horn, recorded between 2018 and 2023. According to Jeff Dorchin's post on our Patreon, and I'm assuming this isn't a bot or a deep fake of any sort. Um, this six-part horn marathon is going to help Jeff get through a lot of housework. Uh, Godspeed to you, Jeff, on, on all that. I've been very much looking forward to producing these episodes. Horn is one of my favorite historians, and I think one of the most important in the Black Radical tradition. His work was very important to my training as a historian. For those who aren't familiar with Horn or his work, he's a pretty big deal in the discipline of history, again, especially in radical historiography. He is the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. 
He's written extensively on issues of racism in a variety of relations, including labor, politics, civil rights, international relations, and war. He's also written uh, extensively about the film industry. Horn holds a PhD in history from Columbia University, a JD from Cal Berkeley, and his BA from Princeton University. He teaches undergraduate courses at the University of Houston in a range of fields, including the civil rights movement and U.S. history through film, as well as graduate courses in diplomatic history, labor history, and 20th century African-American history. Uh, You historians out there know how rare it is to find uh, someone teaching that many different fields of graduate study coursework he's uh, truly a, a, a broad and incisive thinker this year Horn won the Franz Fanon Lifetime Achievement Award from the Caribbean Philosophical Association the uh, announcement for that award provides a, a gra- an apt description of his impact, which I will relate here. Dr. Gerald Horn is a longtime activist in anti-racist and working class struggles whose research and scholarship played and continues to play an important role in bringing to the fore important dimensions of struggles for freedom along axes and intersections of class, gender, and race. This combination made him not only a student of the black radical tradition, but also one of its major figures, alongside Herbert Aptheker, Manning Marable, and Cedric Robinson, all of whom are part of the namesake of this award. He holds the John J. Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. His research has addressed issues of racism in a variety of relations, uh, including labor, politics, and civil rights, international relations, and war. He's also written extensively about the film industry. Uh, Horn is the author of more than 30 books and 100 scholarly articles and reviews. His current research includes the recently published Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1918 through 1968, and a study of U.S. imperialism in Northeast Africa principally Egypt and Ethiopia in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and a similar study concerning U.S. imperialism in Southeast Asia during the same period. I'm very excited for both of those works to come out. So each of the next six episodes of This Is Hell will include a Gerald Horn interview. Uh, I will post these in chronological order. Today's features the insights from his 2018 study published by Monthly Review Press titled 
The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in the 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. Then on Tuesday, we will feature a 2019 interview on his book published that year by international publishers titled White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. Then on Wednesday, the interview we're featuring then offers a sort of prequel to the book discussed in today's interview. It discusses the findings and insights from Horn's 2021 American Book Award winner, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century, published in 2020 by Monthly Review Press. And then next week, Monday's episode turns to sports history and its intersection with race and racism. In his 2020 work from international publishers titled Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. We then return to the long reach of uh, America's so-called peculiar institution, which is actually, if you look at American history, uh, not all that peculiar. Uh, As seen through the history of the Slaveholders Republic in Texas in Horn's 2022 book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow in the Roots of U.S. Fascism. This one's also from international publishers. And then finally, next Wednesday, we will revisit our most recent interview with Horn, recorded on July 10th, 2023, which discusses his most recent work from international publishers, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 through 2000. So, I hope you like history, listeners, because you're about to get a big old dose of it over the next couple of weeks. Speaking of history, also in store this week and next are the first two installments of Rinaldo Migaldi's The Worst of Rotten History, or as I like to call it, Rottenest History. These are Ronaldo's hand-picked favorites from his long-running Rotten History series, documenting some of the worst and most overlooked episodes of the human past. The first installment will drop tomorrow, this Tuesday, and the second installment will drop next Tuesday. Uh, Wednesday's episodes, the next two weeks, will each feature a hand-picked uh, best of moment of truth chosen by longtime contributor Jeff Dorchin. This Wednesday, in recognition of the Supreme Court's continued lousy decisions, 
Jeff recommends thinking of Scrantonin Scamuel Scrotus Skeleto as a composite of past radical Catholic fascists. I'm very much looking forward to that, Jeffy. I assume it's radio-friendly. I guess I'll have to see. No past inside the present this week, since Sebastian is out in the Rocky Mountains on vacation. But we might have one new one on uh, on Monday, August 7th. Stay tuned. No hangover this week. No hangover cure this week, that is, because, well, I'm not hungover. Nor have I found a working cure outside of either staying drunk or getting really stoned so that I just forget I'm hungover. Coming up after the interview, I will reveal your answers to this week's question from hell. What's this week's question from hell, anyway? I don't think I mentioned that at the top. It's both topical and timely. This week's question from hell is, What's the creepiest thing about wherever you travel to regularly? Again, what's the creepiest thing about wherever you travel to regularly? It looks like our listeners on Patreon are always already having fun with this one. And if you want to get a jump start on the week's question from hell like those listeners are, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thisishell to support the sort of bong-ripping journalism you won't find anywhere else. Without further delay, here's Chuck, Mertz, and Gerald Horn discussing the intertwined histories of settler colonialism and slavery in the 17th century Atlantic world, as well as their far-reaching effects that still shape the present. See you on the flip side. This is hell. The British Empire would never have been an empire if it was not for slavery. America wouldn't have become a superpower. Capitalism wouldn't even exist. Slavery changed the world forever, and that means its hideous legacy still lingers with us today and will linger with us far into the future. Here to help us dive deep into the hellish world of settler colonialism. Historian Gerald Horn is author of The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. Welcome to This Is Hell, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to have you on the show. Gerald is John Jay and Rebecca Moore's professor of African-American history at the University of Houston. His two previous books were Facing the Rising Sun, African-Americans, Japan, and the Rise of Afro-Asian Solidarity, and Storming the Heavens, African-Americans, and the Early Fight for the Right to Fly. You write that at the onset of the 17th century, the sceptered isle was a second-class power, but the Great Britain that emerged by the beginning of the 18th century was, in many ways, the planet's reigning superpower. It then passed that baton to its revolting spawn, the United States, which was carried global dominance into the present century. There are many reasons for this stunning turnabout, yet any explanation that elides slavery, colonialism, and the shards of an emerging capitalism, along with their handmaiden white supremacy, is deficient in explanatory power. 
how much was that emerging capitalism, how much was its success not due to the genius that is the economics of capitalism, but due to its employment of slavery, colonialism, and white supremacy. Is the United States is the success of the United States more a success of slavery, white supremacy, and colonialism than a victory for capitalism and the combined outcome with democracy? The short answer is yes. And of course, I'm not the first historian to make this explanation. You may be familiar with the book by Walter Rodney of Guyana, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, or the book by the founding father of modern Trinidad and Tobago. I'm speaking of Eric Williams, Capitalism and Slavery, which actually came out in the 1940s. I think that the distinctiveness of my book is that both Rodney and Williams, being subjects or past subjects of the British Empire of London, uh, castigate and point the finger of accusation understandably at London, whereas being a national of the United States of America, I'm more focused on how London laid the foundation for the rise of the United States of America. The short answer to this inquiry is that beginning in 1655, England seized Jamaica from Spain, which contributes to the so-called sugar boom, that is to say, growing sugar from the unpaid labor of enslaved Africans. Sugar was not only something to sweeten your tea and coffee, it was in some ways seen as a mark of sophistication, in some ways seen as a miracle drug. This pours money into the coffers of London, allowing it not only to expand its navy, which of course needs to be built by workers, and therein you begin to see the incipient nature of the rise of capitalism, but you also see that the building of the Royal Navy Navy also allows London to take down a peg or two, the country that might have been seen in 1655 or even in 1660 as the country that would emerge triumphant in the 18th century going forward. I'm speaking of the Netherlands. England seizes what is now New York City and a good deal of what are now the mid-Atlantic states from the Netherlands in 1664. In 1672, you see that the African slave trade is systematized through the rise of the Royal African Company under the thumb of the monarch. But then you begin to see how the rising merchant class is very much interested in gaining a share of the enormous wealth of the African slave trade. Keep in mind that the African slave trade was one of the most profitable businesses known in the history of humankind, you can invest $1 and get a $1,700 profit. And there are those today who would sell their firstborn for a 1,700% profit. This dynamic then leads to a raging conflict between the rising merchant class and the monarch, whereby the monarch loses, is taken down a peg or three in the so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688, which is fought, understandably, on the part of the on the part of the merchants under the guise of liberty, freedom, democracy, the usual propaganda and rhetoric. But what that does is put the monarch on a glide path to being the figurehead that Queen Elizabeth of London is today, and allowing the merchants to rise and flex their muscles and thereby give uh, empowerment, if you like, to what emerges as the British Empire 
And then, of course, the merchants then in 1776 are not finished because then uh, they rebel against London, that is to say their comrades on this side of the Atlantic, and kick out the uh, British, not least because in 1772, in Somerset's case, uh, London had abolished slavery in England. It was felt that that decision would leapfrog the Atlantic, thereby jeopardizing the fortunes of those like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, a murderous row of slave owners and founding fathers. And then likewise, in 1763, London had issued the so-called Royal Proclamation, which was seeking to restrain the settlers in North America from moving west, engaging the Native Americans, fighting them, taking their land, which, of course, caused London to expend blood and treasure in order to effectuate those goals. 1776, in many ways, was a rebellion against Somerset's case in 1772 and the Royal Proclamation of 1763. And you cannot begin to understand, number one, why it is there's so many black people in Chicago, and number two, how and why it is that so many black people from the Atlantic to the Pacific or slain by officers of the state without due process of law, without understanding this background history about the rise of slavery, white supremacy, and capitalism. So it seems like, and you bring this up in your book, slavery ended in a certain way, monarchism, because it challenged the power of the monarchs. It brought about capitalism. It brought about, as you write in your book, bourgeois democracy. So... It, that seems like a lot of great things that the West depends upon today. But I can't imagine that the price was worth it. How much? What was the cost of bourgeois democracy, of ending monarchism, of capitalism, when we consider the fact that all of those things happened due to slavery? Well, first of all, let's consider the Native American population, the population right. that once occupied the territory on which you're sitting. Not only were they expropriated in terms of their land, not only were they subjected to a genocide, not only in terms of what's usually trotted out in terms of diseases spread by Europeans, but also in terms of volitional acts uh, by the settlers, that is to say liquidating the Native American population, not only liquidating them, but engaging in an early form of ethnic cleansing by selling them into the slave markets of, for example, the Ottoman Turks and what is now Turkey, for example. You can find Native American DNA all over the world because they were basically expelled from their land. Then, of course, there's the question of the African population. That is to say, those who were brought over from the Atlantic against their will, uh, there were hundreds of thousands, if not millions, who perished in that process. Of course, even when the enslaved African population committed suicide, which many of them did, it would be folly not to lay that suicide uh, at the doorstep of those who would enslave them, because obviously they were reacting rather violently to the prospect of being enslaved. So this was the cost of the building of anti-monarchism. This was the cost of the building of, of uh, capitalism. Now, of course, there are those who say, well, in, in terms of the ledger, it was still worth it. Okay, well, if that's going to be your ethos, well, let us imagine, for example, if China, the 21st century's rising power, somehow decides that it's going to come to the Pacific coast of North America, from Seattle to San Diego, and start snatching the computer engineers and the architects and the professors 
and dragging them across the Pacific to be enslaved, because in many ways that's what happened with the African slave trade. That is to say, the enslavers oftentimes uh, very carefully picked out those who, for example, had knowledge of rice growing, those, for example, who had knowledge in terms of blacksmithing, and then dragged them across the Atlantic to toil for free. I dare say that if somehow, and I doubt if this is going to happen, quite frankly, but somehow, if you to use your imagination, if China were to engage in what the European settlers engaged in in North America, I doubt if there would be a, a kind of rationalization or justification of that in order to build the greater glory of China. And getting back to the Native American role in slavery, you, uh, you write that roughly two to four million Native Americans also were enslaved from the advent of Columbus to the end of the 19th century. It's possible that 5 million indigenous Americans were enslaved. This form of slavery coexisted roughly with enslavement of Africans, leading to a catastrophic decline in the population of indigenous. To you, what explains why the indigenous role in slavery and the catastrophic impact uh, slavery had on the indigenous seems so often erased from history? And how much do we not realize the impact of slavery because or the role that it played in the growth of the United States, the British Empire, or uh, even capitalism, because that indigenous slavery is erased, even to the point of, as you were just pointing out, that the British were exporting indigenous Americans around the world as slaves. Do we do we miss do we not understand the importance of the role of slavery in the growth of the United States in the growth of capitalism because we simply erase the indigenous role from history? Well, I think that's part of it and I think part of it is a kind of blindness in the United States because many who reside here consider themselves to be patriots and that leads to step number 1 downplaying the tragedies that befell others as the moment arrived to build this country. And then number two, I think that that infects the historians who oftentimes make a choice that they'll downplay the question of indigenous slavery as they tell this uplifting story about the building of the United States of America. It's only in recent years that you've begun to see Native American historians begin to tackle the fraught and complex history of of North America and begin to tell their own story. And likewise, it's only in recent decades that you've begun to see historians of African descent begin to do the same thing. Keep in mind that during the era of Jim Crow, which lasted roughly until the mid to late 1960s, that only historians who were defined as white were oftentimes allowed to visit archives. And archives are where these secrets are kept and oftentimes buried. And so therefore, it would be very difficult for Native American historians, black historians, to tell that story. And sadly enough, uh, too many historians defined as white did not consider this story to be sufficiently important, which of course then leads to an explosion in the 1960s by angry black students at Northwestern and the University of Chicago demand black studies departments more hiring of black professors, et cetera, and then a cheerful historian, so-called white historians, then wondering uh, why all of this rage is taking place. How much do you think we realize slavery's global impact, how it was a unique and unprecedented era in human history that had devastating effects still felt to this day 
and likely for centuries into the future. To what degree do you think the general public understands the impact of four centuries of Amer- African and uh, indigenous slavery on the economic and political development of not only the West and the United States, but the world? Well, I don't think it's very well understood. Uh, point number one, I think oftentimes there's a misunderstanding because we know, and anthropologists have told us, that there is a kind of slavery that exists between the first form of human organization, speaking of what is called primitive communalism, and the third form, that is to say feudalism. The difficulty is that this new form of slavery that arises post-1492 is different from the older forms of slavery. The older forms of slavery basically afflicted and affected every corner of this small planet on which we reside. The newer form of slavery uh, arising, say, in the late 15th century and the early uh, 1500s, oftentimes is racialized. That is to say, you have the invention of this notion of race, with certain races deemed to be inferior. And then there is this idea that you are a slave forever and that you will carry the mark of slavery forever. For example, what has afflicted, afflicted and affected the black population in the United States? Then it's yoked to the roaring engine of capitalism, which creates all this wealth for some, which oftentimes leads to a kind of blindness in perceiving the tragedy that befell those who were basically the uh, rungs on which some were able to climb the class ladder. There's another story that I tell in this book, which is about the Ottoman Turks, the predecessors of present-day Turkey, and the slave trade in Western Europeans, and also Southeastern Europeans, that was a major emphasis of the Ottoman Turks. However, in 1683, you have another turning point when the Ottoman Turks are turned back at the gates of Vienna, and their sweet westward is detained, if not obliterated for all time. And this allows Western Europeans who had feared that when they sail southward from Bristol and from Liverpool, for example, to West Africa, that they could be enslaved themselves off the coast of Algeria or off the coast of Morocco. With the defeat of the Ottoman Turks, that particular threat dissipated, and that too gave an impetus to the African slave trade. So you write, sorry, excuse me, uh, you write the United States is the inheritor of the munificent crimes of not only London, but Madrid, too. When Hernando de Soto crossed what became known as the Mississippi River in the 1530s, he had in tow enslaved indigenous as he helped to clear the land for what became the future's comfortable U.S. suburbs. What do you say to those who argue that they are not the inheritors of any past crime committed by their ancestor that they or their ancestor may have benefited from as it relates to the outcomes of slavery that they should not be held responsible? And to what degree is it even possible through any kind of reparation, no matter what shape or form that that can take, can actually repair any lingering effects from four centuries of slavery? Well, I assume that those who make that point would also turn to Germany and tell Germany that it should not be paying reparations to Israel, which it did in the post-1947, post-1948 era. Uh, I assume that uh, those who take that position 
would also turn to Japanese Americans and say that Ronald Reagan was wrong when he helped to engineer reparations to those Japanese Americans who were interned by the United States during the era from 1941 to 1945, uh, principally on the basis of their so-called racial heritage, look, it's going to be difficult to deal with the complexity of what has been wrought over the past centuries. However, difficulty does not mean doing nothing, as the example of Ronald Reagan and the Japanese-Americans suggest in the case of Germany and those who were subjected to the Holocaust suggest. Now, it's interesting that that point is brought forward because I understand the difficulty that it takes to have this climb down from the idea that the United States is the greatest country and society ever developed by human hand, but at the same time, it's the product of this major tragedy that was inflicted upon unwilling subjects. Uh, there is a principle in U.S. law, and indeed Anglo-American law, that there should be no wrong without a remedy, except when it, I assume when it comes to Native Americans and Africans, when you can say there can be centuries of wrongs without a proposed remedy. My button. Uh, so uh, even to this day, is the secret of our own, even individual even or collective contribution to capitalism, our willingness to accept slavery or slave-like conditions for workers in order for us to benefit from the system? How much does even today's free trade, neoliberal globalization resemble settler colonialism? Well, that's a fair point. I mean, there are scholars today who suggest that there are more unpaid laborers today than there were at the height of the African slave trade. I was just in Los Angeles airport just a few days ago, and I noticed a, a very strange sign in a men's room, which was asking those who were aware of those who were working without wages to report this to the California authorities. Uh, keep in mind that just a few years ago, you had a number of Asian workers in a uh, textile or clothing plant in Southern California who perished as they were locked into this plant as flames consumed those who were there. Uh, if you go around the world, not only in North America, but in places that are less developed, you still find inhumane working conditions. And a lot of this has to do with the decline of unions, the organizations of working people, something that I'm sure people in Chicago are, are quite familiar with. And as long as you have the decline of unions, it seems to me that we're always going to be faced with the very dire and drastic prospect of people being forced to work for next to nothing or for a mere pittance. So uh, was slavery a chosen path to modernity, or was it imposed upon the world? Well, slavery was a chosen path to modernity in the sense that those who perpetrated the crimes involved in dispossession of the Native Americans and enslavement of the Africans certainly knew what they were doing. Now, in terms of the victims, that is to say, the indigenous population and the African population, of course, they were victimized by modernity. And it seems to me that you will always have an unsteady and fragile society as long as that basic truth is not 
well understood. You'll always have what are being euphemistically characterized as urban rebellion, such as what happened in Watts, Los Angeles in August 1965, or what happened in April 1968 on the west side of Chicago in the aftermath of the slaying of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You'll always have these intermittent explosions as long as justice is not meted out and as long as there is an attempt to cover up the basic tragedy that was involved in the building of these United States of America. Um, So how much does Africa still suffer to this day from the slave trade? How much can you trace conflicts today within Africa back to settler colonialism by Europeans? Because often when I have pointed out that whatever issue that we are, whatever challenge we're facing today well, you can trace this back. You can trace its origins back to settler colonialism. I'll have people say, "You say that every time. You say it every time." But that happened hundreds of years ago. So, how much does Africa still suffer to this day, at this very moment, from the slave trade from the 16th to 19th century? Well, let's start on this continent. I mean, how and why is it that some of the lowest rates of life expectancy take place on Indian reservations? How and why is it that life expectancy of those of African descent is well below the norm here in this most modern developed society, the United States of America? How and why is it that uh, uh, African-American preschoolers are subjected to a harsher discipline than other kinds of preschoolers, thereby stunting their life chances? Uh, There was a response to to that latter phenomenon in the New York Times a few years ago, where it was suggested, I assume jokingly, that we'll reach a time sooner rather than later when African infants will be punished because they'll be assumed to be crying louder. Now, historians have tackled the subject in the question that you've just mentioned. I'm speaking of Joseph Inacori of the University of Rochester, who has suggested that in painstaking detail involving Uh, pouring through amounts of statistics, that if you look at the countries that were principally afflicted by the African slave trade, and that's going from the bulge of Africa, Senegal, down to what is now Angola and Southwest Africa, rounding the Cape to Mozambique, that you can draw a straight line from the battle days of the African slave trade to their underdevelopment today. One issue particularly comes up, which is that the enslavers oftentimes try to stoke and engender inter-ethnic conflict, uh, what sometimes might be called tribal conflict, in order to divide and conquer so that the losers in these conflicts could then be sold into slavery. That kind of inter-ethnic conflict is still a problem in Africa, and in some ways can be traced directly back to the battle days of the African slave trade. You write the Republicans in North America move toward a new kind of aristocracy, that is, whiteness, by which Europeans of various stripes could be accommodated as against the interests of dispossessed indigenous and enslaved Africans. This concern was facilitated by the practical desire of English colonists in, for example, Virginia, to trade with the then antagonist Dutch, engendering a process that led to a new identity, whiteness, or the leapfrogging of ethnic boundaries and constraints. So to what degree is whiteness a creation of the colonies and colonists of the United States? And did it, didn't a sense of whiteness exist 
prior to people from different European countries uh, desire to trade with one another in the American colonies? Because it sounds like what you're saying is that the concept of whiteness came about because of the United States, and then that concept of whiteness was uh, allowed slavery. Well, I wouldn't say that the concept of whiteness comes about because the creation of the United States. I would say it comes about through the process of colonialism, particularly settler colonialism in the Americas. Scholars today, they either point to the creation of whiteness in the 17th century, particularly the 1660s as the slave trade takes off, or they point to it in terms of the early 1500s in the aftermath of Columbus's voyage when there was this process to draw a sharp line of demarcation between the indigenous population of the Americas and the invading settlers so that the former could be more readily enslaved and so that that could be justified. Now, I think that scholars, particularly a number of scholars right there where you are in Chicago, uh, have helped to engender what is considered to be one of the most important fields in the academy right now. I'm speaking of whiteness studies, which goes into this fundamental question. How is it that those who were warring on the shores of Europe, English versus Irish, English versus Scot, British versus French, British versus German, German versus Russian, uh, Serb versus Croat, Croat versus Bosnian, Hungarian versus Pole, all of a sudden when they cross the Atlantic, they're magically transmuted into this new politics of identity, the identity politics of whiteness, a militarized identity politics, if you will, which helps to facilitate, obviously, the creation of a new and different society than what was created on the shores of Europe, and also allows for the more crass exploitation of those not inducted into the hollowed halls of whiteness, speaking of the indigenous population in the first instance, and the enslaved African population in the second instance. So this whole concept of whiteness cannot be understood or discussed absent a very close and careful understanding of the dynamics of colonialism. So uh, was race then a creation of those seeking empire? Because there is a sense that the role race plays within empire is the role race always played, that is, within a framework of racism and white supremacy and privilege. Was it a ploy to get the public to support the government's imperial ambitions? Well, you may notice that in this book, uh, I go through a painstaking analysis of how and why it is that between 1600 and 1700, overwhelmingly those crossing the Atlantic to reside in the Americas were those of African descent. The problem was is that these were not willing migrants. They had a tendency to rebel. They had a tendency to revolt, which finally, of course, led to their victory in what is known as the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804. But even before the Haitian Revolution in the 1600s, where the slave trade is taking off, you see this rebelliousness on the part of the African population, which leads then to this, what I call the great trek from the Caribbean to the North American mainland. Keep in mind that until the middle of the 18th century, that is to say the 1750s, London thought that the Caribbean islands were more valuable than the North American mainland. However, because of the rebelliousness of the Africans, particularly in Barbados, which could fairly be characterized as the first English colony, you began to see the great trek to the North American mainland and the establishment 
of the settlement that is now known as South Carolina in the 1670s, which was a colony of a colony, a colony of Barbados. So I don't think you can begin to understand the concept of whiteness, the concept of how the United States came into being without, first of all, a uh, not detaching the Caribbean from the North American mainland because they were very tightly linked, and secondly, understanding the dynamics of whiteness. You write that the Irish and other dissidents who had been conscripted into working in the fields of the Caribbean receded gradually in numbers as they could now be promoted to be overseers or soldiers to keep this larger group of Africans in check. Out of this crucible emerged the renewed and more toxic racial identity that was whiteness, which also involved an alliance among Europeans of various class backgrounds, all bound by petrified unity in reaction to the prospect of a slave rebellion that would liquidate them all. To what degree is any lack of class consciousness, especially within white America, due to race and the idea of whiteness lying across class divides. Is there a lack of class consciousness in the United States because of the concept of whiteness? Well, first of all, one of the points that I try to make in this book is that in the 17th century, you see race replacing religion as an axis of society. That is to say, at the onset of the 1600s, you had these tremendous religious conflicts, particularly as reflected in the Thirty Years' War, Protestant versus Catholic. Recall that Martin Luther, the father of modern Protestantism, uh, we mark the 500th anniversary of the rise of the Protestant faith just last fall, that is to say 1517. And then, of course, you had anti-Semitism, that is to say uh, Christian versus Jewish. And then, of course, you had Christian versus uh, Islam. But what happens with the rise of settler colonialism is that you have race replacing religion as an axis of society. This leads to a, a cross-class identity between those of European descent. And I think that it also leads to a kind of class collaboration between poorer Europeans and richer Europeans. And that kind of class collaboration, you saw its latest expression in November 2016, when a number of those who could fairly be described as either white poor, white working class, or white middle class uh, cast their ballot for a so-called billionaire, because it's not really clear if he has all the wealth that he claims, uh, under the premise that he would make America great again. Now, what does that mean? I mean, for some of us, that mean, may mean bringing back Jim Crow. That may be, mean bringing back slavery, for example. But I dare say that their dreams will not necessarily be realized, although many of us will be harmed in the process of defeating their project. So does our lack of class consciousness then reflect the level of racism that the United States has here within within our country? Because I we recently I was talking to a listener who's from Italy. And he said he couldn't stand living in the States anymore because of the lack of class consciousness and at the same time, <clears throat> the amount of racism. So I'm just curious if the lack of class consciousness we have here in the United States is because of the intense heightened level of racism. I think there's something to that. I mean, look at voting patterns, for example. How and why is it that in the heart of Dixie, Mississippi, Alabama, to begin with, that for the last 50 to 60 years, you've had nine out of 10 voters defined as white voting for the Republican Party. 
This, of course, coincides with President Lyndon Baines Johnson signing the Voting Rights Act of 1965, a kind of Magna Carta for black voters, which then helps to ensure black voting loyalty to the Democrats and leads to the so-called white backlash and the so-called creation of the silent majority as encapsulated by Richard M. Nixon in the election of 1968. And since that time, including in November 2016, you've had this amazing coalition, uh, this cross-class collaboration between and amongst those of white uh, voters in Dixie of pulling the voting lever for the same political candidate. So yes, I do think that there is a correlation between the dearth of class consciousness in the United States and the rising tide of racism. And in order to understand that, you need look no further than the state of Mississippi and the state of Alabama, which, by the way, happen to be the homelands of many people who migrated, who fled Dixie in order to find a kind of freedom in Chicago. You write that the this uh, desensitizing is also revealed by the depredations of the English Civil uh, War. This is a little bit off track, but I'll get to my point, bigger point here. And the Thirty Years' War, which had sent many fleeing to North America in the first place. Those who witnessed mass rape and beheadings were hardly well placed to display humanitarianism once they came to the United States, especially toward Native Americans and Africans, which, which incipient racialization was placing beyond the pale in any crisis. How much, then, is the U.S. a creation of Britain's exporting of the English Civil War and Thirty Years' War to the Americas? Because we often hear jokes about how Australia is the creation of being a prison state. Is the U.S. the outcome of war? How much do you think that being birthed from war still has an impact on the U.S. today? Well, I'm glad you mentioned the case of Australia, because there I find much more honesty in terms of dealing with the origins of settlers. That is to say that it's no accident that uh, Australia is set up as a colony in 1788, shortly after uh, London loses the war to the settlers in North America, and thereby London is no longer able to send its poor, its prostitutes, its pickpockets to North America, and thereby it begins to send them uh, to Australia. Likewise, as I try to point out in this book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, that in order to understand how and why it is that so many were crossing the Atlantic from Bristol and Liverpool and London, you have to understand the English Civil War. You have to understand the violence between 1640 and 1660 that involves the beheading of a king and the revolt of the incipient merchant class against that monarch. And how so? And also, of course, uh, the exploitation of Ireland. Uh, that is to say, this uh, conflict that still reigns to a certain degree in Ireland. Oliver Cromwell, the man responsible for the beheading of the king, the so-called Lord Protector, of course, was a fierce uh, anti-Irish Catholic partisan, and many of those defeated Irish Catholics then either fled to the settlements in the Americas, or were forcibly deported to the settlements in North America and the Caribbean. And certainly after witnessing the kind of bloodshed they had seen in Ireland, uh, this to a certain degree desensitized them and made it difficult for them to engage in a kind of class solidarity with the poor, exploited, and oppressed of North America and the Caribbean. 
And I dare say that we still are having that difficulty today in 2018. You write as early as in 1663, an observer in Suriname noticed that Negroes are the strength and sinews of the Western world. And you add the enslaved, a peculiar form of capital encased in labor, represented simultaneously the barbarism of the emerging capitalism along with its productive force. Is that the inherent contradiction within capitalism, that it is both productive and barbaric? Is capitalism public tolerance for barbarism in the name of economic productivity? Well, to a degree, yes. Even Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, and by some measures, the second richest person in the world after Jeff Bezos of Amazon, has pointed out that capitalism can produce enormous wealth. He didn't say enormous wealth for some. He just said enormous wealth. But he went on to say that it has a problem, and this is a euphemism, in distributing that wealth to all of the denizens, for example, of North America. And this is Bill Gates speaking, and certainly that was the case in the uh, 1600s, where by dint of slave labor and mass dispossession of the Native American population, you had tremendous amounts of wealth that was being created. But then, even more so than today, that wealth was not being distributed evenly. And we still have that problem today. That's one of the reasons why economic inequality is one of the reigning issues of today's United States of America. And I dare say that if this current project, if this current United States of America is somehow weakened, debilitated, or even toppled, one of the primary reasons will be this nagging issue of economic inequality, which there, which is then super tur- uh, turbocharged supercharged by the remaining racism and white supremacy that still stalks the land. I kept thinking that all of this was potentially unintended consequences, but you quote Adam Smith writing, the discovery of America and that of a passage to the East Indies by the Cape of Good Hope are the greatest and most important events recorded in the history of mankind. Surely, these navigational feats propelled the African slave trade, which generated tremendous wealth and even more inequality. So how aware were the people of the time of the impact that capitalism com- combined with slavery would have on human history? Well, I think they were well aware, but you have to realize that it would be a mistake to somehow take our modern mentality of 2018 and try to read it back into the 1700s or the 1600s. That is to say, in the 1600s in particular, uh, those who were being enslaved or, or dispossessed, oftentimes they were not seen as being part of the human family, oftentimes because of the emerging concept of race and racism and white supremacy, they were seen as being beyond the pell. It would be as if... Uh, People who are eating a turkey sandwich today or a beef sandwich, they don't see the turkeys or the cows as being part of the human family, and that's why they see it as being appropriate to eat them. Well, if you can imagine there were those who in the 1600s saw people of African descent and Native American descent being as not a part of the human family, and not only that, they weren't Christians, they were heathens, quote-unquote, well, then it was right and proper. Uh, it was understandable why they should be dispossessed or enslaved. And I think part of the problem with historians is oftentimes they want to 
cast a halo over those who founded this country, and so thereby they impart to them the kind of modern mentality that we possess in 2018. But I think that that's misleading. I think it's misguiding. I think it's bad history. Just like assuming that this planet survives, it would be a mistake for those in 2099 to assume that those in 2018 have the same kind of mentality. How much do you think capitalism is the state religion of the United States? Because you write the religious conflicts that animated the 17th century began to recede, uh, Christian versus Muslim, Catholic versus Protestant. As the uh, filthy wealth generated by slavery and dispossession accelerated, capitalism and profit became the new god with its curia in the basilicas of Wall Street. So how much is capitalism the state religion of the United States? Well, I do think that there is a connection between the rise of the great wealth generated through capitalism, not least through the African slave trade and dispossession of the indigenous, and how that could then be poured into scientific research. And with the rise of science, then you begin to see the receding of religion. And then, in any case, there was a contradiction at the heart of religion, because religion was, on the one hand, seeking to impart these humanitarian lessons, and on the other hand, religion was complicit in terms of the most bestial crimes known to humankind. That was a contradiction, and it was inevitable that given that stark hypocrisy, that there would, that would help to generate fewer believers in the themes and theses of religion. And I dare say that that is still an issue today. That is to say, in 2018, with churches closing, with uh, so-called Christian evangelists uh, who were seeking to flay Bill Clinton for extramarital affairs, but now look the other way as the current president uh, is involved and in, in enmeshed in all manner of extramarital affairs. That kind of hypocrisy helps to erode the integrity of religion and thereby leading to this search for wealth and profit and material well-being as being the new god, if you like. Is capitalism a fraud propped up by four centuries of slavery, a con? Well, in part. In part, it is, because if you ignore the, pardon the expression, dark side, quote-unquote, of the creation of capitalism, which involves mass dispossession and enslavement, and then just uh, walk down the road of this fairy tale, talking about the great wealth that's created and the democratic rights that are imparted to some and not others, well, certainly, that is the height of a fraudulent con. You write that those who heartily castigate and declaim the crimes of socialism, a system that led directly to the liberation of millions of Africans and darker peoples from the domination of the routinely praised North Atlantic powers, lose all sense of proportion when they simultaneously downplay and warp what, has re what was required to build the United States and modernism and a supposed democracy. Globally, has socialism been better for people of color than democracy has? Well, I think so. Even the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times acknowledge that there have been more people lifted out of poverty in China than in any other part of planet Earth. Now, of course, uh, you know, let me do my obligatory uh, critique of China, which I've 
written about in a book I did on Zimbabwe. But I think it's fair to say that if you look at the liberation of Southern Africa, for example, from apartheid, recall that U.S. presidents such as Ronald Wilson Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush were amongst those who were fundamentally in bed with apartheid South Africa. And it took the dispatching of Cuban troops in 1975 to southern Angola to defeat the apartheid army on the battlefield and then threaten to invade South Africa and forcibly eject the apartheid rulers from Pretoria and forcibly eject the white minority government from what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. The the dispatching of Cuban troops under the leadership of Fidel Castro, that's what led to the liberation of Southern Africa. Certainly not the administrations in Washington who were in bed with the minority regimes in Southern Africa. So once again, there is a loss of all sense of proportion when it comes to trying to compare, for example, the role that socialist projects played in terms of uplifting people out of poverty or liberating people from the worst excesses, the most egregious harm of white supremacy, and comparing that to how people of color in particular were basically cast into a hell involving enslavement of the most horrific proportions. One last question for you, Gerald. We've been speaking with historian Gerald Horn. He is author of The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. One last question for you, Gerald. And as it is for all of our guests, we call our final question the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. The thing I kept kept coming back to while I was reading your book is that this was four centuries of, you know, spanning four centuries of slavery, and that every historical event that happened in, during those four centuries, every one was touched by this global market of slavery. Everything that happened during those four centuries was somehow linked to slavery. To what extent does the United States' history of slavery and any accountability it has taken for that history currently undermine the ability to be a democratic nation? Is there something inherent within the fact that this quote-unquote democracy was born out of an era of slavery mean that there is something built in within our democracy that is a failure because it's born out of an era of slavery? The short answer is yes. But the good news is, is that we can circumvent that dilemma that you've just sketched. I mean, for example, uh, I've maintained in a number of writings that even when the United States abolished slavery in 1865, a problem there was that you had a massive expropriation without compensation of property owners, speaking of the slave owners. And that led to fury on the part of the descendants of those slave owners who were then cast into poverty as their property was taken without compensation. And then, not only that, you had the former property, who theretofore had been seen as less than human, walking around seeking to claim equality. And some of the problems that we face in 2018 comes from that turning point in in U.S. history in, in 1865. However, I think that we can revisit this history 
There's nothing keeping us from revisiting this history, going through a reckoning, going through a reckoning that will not only lead to a clear historical understanding, but an attempt to try to make whole, an attempt to try to repair the immense damage that has been inflicted, not least on the Native American population and the African population. So I think that despite the perhaps pessimistic thrust of your question, uh, there is a way out. There is an exit. We just need the courage and the organization to follow that particular path. There is an exit, but that exit, it doesn't have to be based on a revolution that completely overthrows or changes the U.S. government. You think that even the democracy that we have born out of that slavery can still, to some extent, survive? Well, I think that despite the flawed origin of many of the, quote, democratic rights of the United States, that they can be revivified, for example. They can be imbued with a more democratic content, if you like. I don't think it's necessary to throw out the baby with the bathwater, right, to use that old, <laughs> old phrase. So in a sense, I agree with the thrust of your inquiry. Gerald, I really, really appreciate the conversation that we had this week. It's been fascinating. Your book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, is really an amazing book, and I suggest that all of our listeners go out and check it out. Gerald Horn, author of The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, has been our guest. He is John and J. Rebecca Moore's professor of African-American history at the University of Houston, and his two previous books were Facing the Rising Sun and Storming the Heavens. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you for inviting me. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Welcome back. As you probably heard repeated on this show uh, more than most other claims, Settler colonialism is a crucial through line for understanding U.S. history and, uh, and many uh, other countries for that matter, as well as the current state of the world. So many of our problems go back to the process of settler colonialism. And yet while God's favorite radio show and podcast might assert that regularly, Historians like Gerald Horn actually find the receipts. Their work recovers long ignored, even uh, suppressed structures and uh, lived experiences of settler colonial exploitation, genocide, ecological transformation that were integral to the development of American institutions and culture. And again, this applies to many countries as well. Uh, And that these were not mere accidents or departures from some sort of mythologized values of the American founding or some abstract American idea that uh, conservative and even kind of mainstream liberal myths of American history would have you believe. This is why you won't often find insights like Horns quoted often in, say, the New York Times or the Atlantic. 
and other kind of liberal, middle-brow publications, let alone places like cable news or commercial talk radio. To liberals and conservatives alike, this rotten history upsets the narrative that the arc of history bends toward justice, or that progress is inevitable. That uh, Americans reside in a democracy and meritocracy that is at its core free in the envy of the world. Indeed, it even upsets the idea that there is one story of American history, somehow. Indeed, the process of settler colonialism looked very different to its different um, participants and uh, those in its way. While the genocidal land grab that uh, enabled the eventual establishment of a white man's uh, republic in what became the United States. And indeed, land ownership uh, became pretty widespread amongst the white male population compared to their uh, counterparts in Europe. Their freedom meant others' unfreedom or outright elimination. Indeed, to the indigenous inhabitants of the Americas and the enslaved migrants to the Americas, settler colonialism was indeed a, an apocalyptic prospect. And while slavery and settler colonialism are addressed in the classroom, at least some classrooms, the movement to excise these core structures of American history from the curriculum is resurgent now that uh, conservative charlatans need a new crusade to mobilize their base, since they've already been the dog that's caught the car, so to speak. Now that they've done things like undermine constitutional protections for women's bodily autonomy and the right to choose whether or not to be pregnant or gutting decades long standing uh, environmental law uh, you know the list goes on stopping wokeness in the curriculum is but uh, their kind of new and resurgent project but again, in this context, voices like horns are becoming increasingly drowned out as the culture wars go on and the mainstream media retains its reluctance to challenge core myths that shape how many Americans uh, view their society, culture, their attachment to the past. And if you appreciate that This Is Hell shares 
crucial voices like horns that are increasingly pushed to the margins in mainstream media and discourse, well then please consider becoming a supporter of This Is Hell by subscribing to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thisishell. Your subscription keeps the lights on, the servers running, the bills paid, and producers like me paid to bring our audience this content absolutely free. Your contribution on Patreon also entitles you to a discount on all merch available from thisishell.com. Early access to the weekly Question from Hell. The ability to have your very own Question from Hell for Chuck Mertz answered each week during the Patreon episode. Access to a deep library of handpicked interviews from our archives going back decades at this point. And of course, the This Is Hell weekly bonus Patreon episode every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Central Time. In this Thursday's Patreon bonus episode, Chuck relates his close reading of the community surrounding his family's cottage at the lake that they visit once a year. He's currently spending this weekend next with his family there in the Michigan Northwoods. After these ruminations, an interview recorded on August 2nd, 2008, features Peter Rogers, who discusses the crisis facing the supply of fresh water. Peter wrote the Scientific American article facing the freshwater crisis. Peter argues that as demand for freshwater soars, planetary supplies are becoming unpredictable. Existing technologies could avert a global water crisis, but they must be implemented soon. Peter is Gordon McKay, Professor of Environmental Engineering and Professor of City and Regional Planning at Harvard University. He is also Senior Advisor to the Global Water Partnership, an organization devoted to improving global water management practices as well as a recipient of the Guggenheim and 20th Century Fund Fellowships. Speaking of Patreon, let's check in on how our Patreon listeners are responding to this week's question from hell, which again, they've had access to since uh, last Thursday. Are the rest of you jealous? Our question from hell this week is what's the creepiest thing about wherever you travel to regularly? What's the creepiest thing about wherever you travel to regularly? Let's pull up Patreon, shall we? Alright. I'll do a little refresh. Make sure I am up to date. That is indeed a creepy picture you've posted, Chuck. Accompanying the question. Starting off, we have Erica X who responds to the question, what's the creepiest thing about wherever you travel to regularly? Erica responds, found out that a place where I didn't arrest an artist residency is near a mass grave from the Spanish Civil War. Yikes. 
Fabio L. Responds that my thoughts keep following me. I <laughs> uh, like that one, Fabio. I can relate. And it is indeed one of the creepiest things going on sometimes. Christopher C. responds, my family is always there. <laughs> uh, Essential responds, I was in this prematurely air-conditioned supermarket and there were all these aisles and there were all these bathing caps that you could buy which had these kind of 4th of July plumes on them that were red, yellow, and blue. I wasn't tempted to buy one, but I was reminded of the fact that I've been avoiding the beach. <laughs> I haven't seen any of those at the beach, essential, but uh, I'll be looking for them now. Adi responds to the question, what's the creepiest thing about where you wherever you travel to regularly? That widespread indentured labor and executions of the flimsiest charges. Yikes. Unfortunately, it's where I'm from, so I go back from time to time. Coincidentally, an important strategic U.S. ally in the region. Can you guess which one it is? Could be any number of places. Indeed, Adi. Like, that's a pretty long list at this point. Ah, uh, so I, uh... I don't have a guess for you right now. That's pretty sad fact, isn't it? And then last on Patreon, Nos Refuge, I think, maybe how you pronounce your username, responds, highways. It's insane how much land was destroyed for them. Gives me a creepy feeling thinking about it while I drive. And I don't even own a car. Amen to you, Nos Refuge. It was one of the more effective tools for uh, clearing out so-called slums and so-called blight in American cities. Uh, using the guise of infrastructure, building, and urban planning to clear out poor and non-white populations from American cities at a time when uh, civil rights were expanding and the country was undergoing what many call its second reconstruction. This was sort of an end around of dealing with those problems in places like uh, Chicago, where I am sitting. Daily loved getting that federal highway money in. Anyway, I digress. Keep your responses coming, listeners. You can answer the question from hell by posting on our Facebook, Twitter, Discord, and Patreon pages, or by emailing Chuck at chuckis@thisishell.com. Your response will be read on the air. Every Wednesday, we will choose and announce our favorite response from the week. And the winner gets their pick of This Is Hell merchandise from our website, thisishell.com. We have some new items in stock, listeners. Uh, you might want to check out the website and see what new is on offer. 
We know well you want to represent God's favorite radio show and podcast in as many ways as you can. Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is Hell. I'm producer Will Ippen. Again, covering for Chuck Mertz for the next two weeks while he's on vacation in northern Michigan with his family. I will talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks for listening. And stay beautiful. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.